Yeah, it was crazy. It was, oh my God. Uh, you know, it, it will be interesting just to go back to in a hundred years when people look at, you know, tr- the industries and transformation. I mean, oh, we went, I, I, I think I'm getting my numbers I'm right, but I mean, I think we went from 1,800, 1,900 visits and, you know, March 9th to 65,000 a week later. And I mean, they're just, their numbers, their growth numbers you've never seen in any other industry almost at any time. Um, and that and it was an un- unbelievable. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Way, way back in 2009, John Pierce saw a future that few could imagine. He firmly believed the future of medicine was in the palm of our hands and built an app that would allow doctors and patients to meet virtually. The world wasn't ready for telehealth, but John stuck with it and eventually got some traction for his startup, Zypnosis. He looks like a visionary now, but it took a lot of personal sacrifice and hard work to get there, which we'll discuss along with the explosive growth that occurred during the pandemic. In April, Zypnosis sold to another Minnesota-based startup, Bright Health, a giant among new health insurance companies that has raised more than $1 billion since 2016. John and his team joined Bright Health Group and continue to work on transforming patient and provider connections. I spoke with John just a few weeks before Bright Health went public in June of 2021, so he was limited in what he could say about the acquisition. But we did touch on his vision for the future of healthcare and the focus on problem solving that will no doubt help him get there. To understand the way John approaches every opportunity, we start in Kansas. Well, I grew up as the oldest of seven kids mm. uh, in Kansas, uh, three brothers, three sisters. Uh, my, my parents were divorced when I was uh, pretty young. And um, I was an athlete, a jock at heart. Um, and very musical. Um, music hmm. was kind of been everything that I did. And um, I had a had a knee injury when I was 13. I was playing soccer and blew out my knee. And that kind of that kind of changed things a little bit for me. When I I literally was on the lam for three or four months and uh, started reading, and that kind of activated a a different side of me. But um, I think um, you would you would have seen me as being uh, very happy, uh, but um, also pretty shy and introverted. Uh, but sports was definitely and uh, dominated my, my childhood. So did you know, did you have any idea what you wanted to study, what you wanted to go into? What would you have said in high school? Uh, in high school is international business for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, and, uh, quantum computing, but, um, those were the two paths, (laughs) one a little more viable than the other. (laughs) You studied Russian, didn't you? Did I read that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So this would have been, so I graduated high school in 97. Mm-hmm. And at the time it was, you know, China and Russia were both going through radical transformation. And um, I said, wow, it'd be nice to play in either one of those, uh, oh, those markets. And where I went to undergrad was St. Olaf College and they had a, a phenomenal Russian program. 
And I just fell in love with the music, so the literature in a way that that uh, the Chinese language and culture didn't. And that's why I chose, chose Russian. So what was the first job after college? Uh, first job after college was uh, washing cars at Thrifty. <laughs> <laughs> way to put that education to use. Yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, a, or a, a, kid, a buddy I grew up with, uh, we decided to hike the Appalachian Trail. And so I'd said I didn't look for a job after I graduated. Um, and uh, this was right around the, when the bubble burst. And it was it was a re- it was incredible. I had an internship at a software uh, programming uh, startup before my senior year. Then I went and studied Russian uh, in Russia, came back. The bubble had burst. And mm. prior to then, I had a bunch of Silicon Valley startups going, man, you know Russian and you can program. You, like, we'll, we'll pay you a ton of money to come manage our programmers. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then when I came back, nothing happened. Anyway. Long story short, we were going to hike the Appalachian Trail. We only made it about 10 days, and we were both like, this is not for us. So uh, <laughs> I knew it's to say I didn't have a strong a strong start. But it was really galvanizing. I mean, I learned very quickly, um, you know, as I'm sitting there washing cars, that I, I that wasn't for me. Um, it was a nice uh, catalyst to, to, to get my button gear there, too. So the the jobs that you the way you had set yourself up, knowing Russian, knowing business, knowing computers, thinking that that was going to be the ticket, it it did it eventually turn out to be the ticket or not so much? Uh, well, I like to tell people that I've got my job today because I don't speak Russian well and I can't program. So <laughs> <laughs> that answers the question, right? Um, that you know, I I went back to the uh, company I had an internship. A, a company at the time was called Probation Medical. Um, and, uh, they had struggled through the, the bubble. They were, you know, a startup company. And I went back and I basically said, Hey, can I, can I just get a consulting gig? Right. I mean, it's better than, than washing cars at thrifty. And they said, sure, we've got a month long project that you can help us build a, an ROI model. And I sort of took that and talked my way into, into a job with them. And, uh, that was, uh, as a programmer, um, mm-hmm. for them. And that was kind of my, my foot in the door there. Can you speak any Russian today, by the way? Nemochka. <laughs> very, very little. <laughs> and much better when I'm drinking vodka, I can tell you that much, at I least according it. to me. <laughs> okay. Um, so that sort of puts you in the realm of healthcare. W- was that, I mean, was healthcare something that you had even thought about, or, or, or did that job sort of get you thinking about opportunities in that space? Uh, I had I wanted nothing to do with healthcare, um, to be honest with you. Walking in, you know, but what I learned at at probation um, was that healthcare has a lot of really interesting problems, and that that's that's fun, and a lot of smart people that are working on them. Interestingly, I started as a programmer, but literally about a weekend, they're like, "John, we're going to send you to Colorado Springs. We're launching um, a new orthopedic product." And within two to three weeks, I was standing in the OR watching them open up knees and trying not to literally pass out in front of it. And, you know, talking to these, you know, well-trained alpha orthopedic surgeons about things that I had no right to be talking about. But in that in that I found these intractable problems and and also meaningful problems. And you could see the direct correlation between the work that I did. And the impact on on not just the physicians but also the patients, and and that definitely warmed me to to healthcare. So, what were the problems? What were things that you were noticing? Um, 
complexity. I think healthcare has a American he- healthcare has a complexity fetish, mm-hmm. um, and it, it was just everywhere. Everywhere you looked, from how you got into your surgical clothing to get into the operating room to how you pay for it, everything was complicated. And uh, I am someone who just strives for efficiency and elegance in in how we design things, and that just it got me fired up that there's a way to do things better mm-hmm. um, that isn't so complex, and and that definitely was was the first thing I glommed onto. So that's a pretty broad realization. How do you begin to channel that? That's a great question too. Um, I, you just look for patterns. I think you know I learned this would have been my early 20s. And I just learned. And I remember a, a year after I was hired, I went into my boss and and I said, listen, pay me an experience, you know, because they had <laughs> going from washing cars to a, a steady paycheck. I didn't ask for a lot. And I was I was well underpaid at the time. I think I was making $35,000 a year. And most programmers are making 90. And I brought that into my, my boss and I said, could you close the gap a little bit? Like, you know, <laughs> it might be worth, you know, a little bit. But anyway, I just said, listen, pay me an experience. And and from there, I, I got to see every, almost every aspect of healthcare um, in action, um, from literally being in the surgery room to the back office administration to working with CEOs of the organization. And from there, you could start to get a better picture of how healthcare was working. And and from I, I think that was that's where I started to see patterns of things where it's like, listen, it takes us 14 years to take good evidence-based medicine and put it into practice into the hands of physicians. Why can't we solve that through technology? Why does it have to be so expensive? Why does every interaction have to be so costly? And these questions start to rumble through my head. And at the same time, you know, I come from, you know, a, a programming sort of systems background and it's like, huh, there are, there are ways that we can start solving problems in healthcare that have with tools that we've never had available before us. And, and that was kind of, I think, the the narrative that I went through every single day there. So you you were kind of a sponge for a while. You you had this opportunity to to see different parts of the healthcare system. What what did I mean? Were you just keeping notes? Were you jotting down ideas for actual products, or more focused on here's a problem I can solve? It was really just absorbing. I mean, I would go read the orthopedic manuals on my flights out to Colorado, so I could speak the language with these orthopedic surgeons because I realized. If I didn't have the vernacular, right, you know, language guy, if I couldn't talk the talk, they didn't respect you. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't respect me, I couldn't, I couldn't work with them. And, and once you, I don't know, it just kind of set me off. And, and so I, I started learning, like, what's a running subcuticular stitch look like? And why do you use a three French catheter? Like, this is language that sounds to others like, you know, a foreign language, but it's necessary if you're actually going to connect. And so very much a sponge in once you kind of get in the door, I don't have a clinical background, but once I kind of got over that threshold, I saw a totally another dimension, more of the human dimension that is that underpins a lot of the decisions in healthcare. And that, and I think that was really important to get to. Was there any part of you that thought maybe I should just go to medical school if I already know all oh, this? Oh no, accurate? God. <laughs> Needles and I don't do well together. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. Better to stay in front of the computer. So um, how how long did you do this, this kind of ex- experiencing of healthcare before you said, okay, I, I have an idea. I'm going to do something. You know, I was there, let's see, really from about 2008 three or 2001 till about 2006 and they got bought out um, acquired by a larger company called Walters Kluwer um, which was a fantastic um, experience to go through 
Um, but right about that time, you know, this is when Facebook was getting started, MySpace, a lot of the social media. And for me, what I saw was the emergence of the cell phone as what I thought was going to be the clinic of the future. And one of the insights that I had, um, I remember being at the surgery center in Colorado Springs and talking to the anesthesiologist before a, a procedure. And he's like, you know, and he's, of course, he's an anesthesiologist, anesthesiologist, so everything has to deal with um, anesthesia. And he says, you know, the real reason why you can do these procedures on an outpatient setting, outpatient means you don't have to stay in the hospital, right? Mm -hmm. So you can do basic, you know, knee scopes and the whatnot. He said, it's anesthesia. You don't have to give people general or um, full sedation effectively, which requires multiple days in the hospital. Mm. And he's like, you know, particular type of, of anesthesia allowed us to start to move these procedures into an outpatient setting. And it just clicked for me. It's, it's hard to describe, but it was like the cell phone is going to be that for healthcare, right? And at the same time, I had a friend and a brother-in-law who were working at Minute Clinic and you could just see this right-sizing of care away from this monolithic hospital-based system into a smaller right-sized, right, surgery centers. And you could see primary care moving into retail. And the ultimate endpoint was this, the cell phone, in my opinion. And, and it, it's hard to describe, but you could just kind of put these two pathways together. And it was like, that's where we need to go build for. That's the future. And that started the, the journey for, for virtual care. And and that really was the beginning of Zipnosis, right? That, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I had I had two really great uh, co-founders. One was a physician, um, Dr. Steve Claypool, and Steve is one of the best clinical informatics minds in in the country, I would argue. And and he had been working as an internist, and and he kind of had a similar mindset, which is, man, I could treat these these patients so much better through technology um, than you know, and these routine tasks that could be more automated. And then just a brilliant programmer, Conrad Barsky. Um, and the three of us really formed a really nice triad where Steve brought a lot of clinical. Um, Conrad was actually an MD, but not practicing. And I sort of brought vision and, and some of the business acumen. And, and together, it formed a really a really good partnership to get, to get Zip going. And how long did it take? I mean, how much work was it to, to set this up? I mean, you were basically creating a, a, a smartphone clinic, a minute clinic via the smartphone yeah we were minute clinic on the iphone back in 2009 i mean that was that was it we developed a responsive mobile app with it's now it's like everywhere but it was totally a cutting edge way back then and it probably took us and we built our own expert system for the computer science geeks out there conrad um again just a brilliant programmer and we decided early on that we needed to own the brains in a way that um, that was going to be really impactful. So we basically wrote our own programming language and, and system did it. And that took a couple of years um, mm -hmm. to, to really start to refine. But uh, the end product was was something that was, was truly transformative at the end of the day. It's so interesting to talk to you about this now um, because I, after this last year and so much focus on telehealth and we're all comfortable now, well, a lot of us with the idea of seeing a doctor through a screen. But in 2009, that wasn't really the case. What was no, the my parents thought I was crazy. <laughs> They're like, you can't do this on a on a phone, you know. Uh, but it, 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 it was never a doubt in my mind. Um, and it, it definitely the what we did at Zip was too early for the market on on multiple fronts, and there's no doubt about it. So I think, and this is a tension that I, I have, um, you know, as as an entrepreneur and in sort of what I how I live my daily life is, 
there's a big delta between what is a viable vision and an understanding and what is a viable business. Mm. And Zip back in 2009 and 2010 wasn't a viable business. Mm-hmm. So It did work really well though. Like the underlying, like we were treating patients with higher degrees of clinical outcome in two minutes than you than you could do in a clinic setting. Like that was just a fact, but it wasn't, healthcare wasn't ready for it. So who who used it? And did you put together a network of doctors to, to see the patients who wanted one of your virtual appointments for $25? <laughs> we did. We, we started with a, a partnership. Well, actually, the alpha testing was at my alma mater, St. Olaf. And we, we went down to the, the student clinic there. And because we were outsourcing so much of the, the clinical decision-making to this, you know, expert system, we really had to validate it and if it was safe. And that's where that was the alpha testing. And then we got a, a pilot with Park Nicollet at the time uh, before they were acquired by Health Partners. And they were the clinical backstop for Minnesota. And we launched in uh, May of 2010 to the general public, selling $25 virtual visits. I think there was a CARE 11 article or a video or a television segment that went out and we just had like this huge spike. Um, and then it kind of just stopped, <laughs> you know, like that's got to I mean, feel it was scary. interesting, but it yeah. wasn't sustainable. Yeah. So how quickly did you realize this wasn't sustainable? Uh, I think we realized about a year in, um, interestingly enough, we had a, some early competition, um, health partners launched a competing product called Virtuel just a few months after we did. Um, and there's a, a lot of twists and themes on that one. And that kind of helps, I think, give us a little bit of a false support uh, mm. for the market. But about a year in, it was clear that we we were, we were weren't going to make it just selling $25 visits. Had you put your own money into building Zipnosis? And I mean, were you working on it full time those couple of years before launch? Yeah, so after... Our, Yes, I put my own money in in the form of, of student loans. So after I left probation, I went to grad school at, the, at Carlson, mm-hmm. full-time MBA program. And really it was, I knew, I mean, I didn't have any money. So I knew I could take out student loans. And basically I spent most of my time just incubating Zip. I, mm. I think I had the lowest GPA in, in my class. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty confident of it. My stats professor would definitely agree with you. Um and but I took every entrepreneurship class I could. I took every financing class because that's the one thing I didn't get in you know at probation was, you know how do you build an you know P and L and 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 really think about you know term sheets and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was really formative. But basically, I walked out of my t- and after I dropped out, I used all of my student loan money um, to to get started at Zip, and that's what I lived off of for several years. You dropped out. You didn't finish grad school. All the debt, none of the degree. There you go. <laughs> okay. Well, who's I like laughing to tell now, people, right? I like to tell people I'm not the brightest ball, but I turn on every time. And that's kind of like my theme in life. Like, I'll show up and I'll learn eventually. So. Did, did you drop out because you felt like you had the tools you needed to start Zipnosis? Yeah, you know, I, I entered the Minnesota Cup. And at the time, you couldn't enter in, as a student, you couldn't enter in the main competition. So I had to enter in the student division and I won. And ended up getting about $250,000 worth of angel investment out mm, of that. Mm. And um, 
that was, it was like, all right, okay, I'm going to go do this. I'm all in. And I'm not sort of one of those put the toe in the water guy. I'm like, if we're going to do it, let's just do it. And so I dropped out diving in. Exactly. Okay. So you've got this product, you know, that it's the wave of the future. You believe in it, but the consumers are not responding the way you need them to. How did you pivot? (laughs) A lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of tough choices. Um, you know, we, we burned through all of our seed money. Um, I'd actually brought in a guy to be CEO, um, you know, kind of thinking, well, man, I, I haven't done this before. He had helped um, start Minute Clinic um, mm. uh, way back when. And that turned out to be a, a very poor decision on multiple fronts. Hmm. So we kind of had to do that. And then ultimately, we ended up... Um, getting a call well there's there's a whole there's a whole bunch packed into this one but effectively park nicolet we were about ready to sign a multi-year agreement with them and they said we walked into the to to their business development leader brett and he said i can't sign the i can't sign the agreement and i remember i was with our chief medical officer dr hafner at the time and and we looked at each other and said what do you mean like this is all queued up and he said "I, i can't sign the agreement and, and Becky and I left and we went over to the independent when it was there and, and had uh, Jameson's and curse the mm. world. And cause we're out of money, you know, this is it. Like, you know, this was going to help us kind of, you know, stay alive. And he didn't give a reason. Wow. And Did you ever find out? I mean, what, why would they have changed their tune at the last minute like that? Cause they were uh, getting bought by health partners. Ah, got it. You didn't know that so at the time. We didn't know it, and he couldn't disclose it. I mean, it's it's valid. I mean, he sure. had a valid reason for, sure. for the bigger war, but we certainly saw it. So at that point, it was I, I sat down you know, with, with Becky and then Kevin Smith, who was our chief clinical officer, and we, we sat down at Keys Cafe um, over in St. Paul, and, and I said, listen, you know, we're out of money. I don't know where, where we're going to get it, but I'm going to keep going. And um, if you guys want to join, that's great. And they, they decided to stay on. And we got a call from um, Fairview, kind of Terry, Dr. Terry Martinson. And he said, hey, we really like the product. We like the software. Can we license it from you? Mm. Um, because actually, VirtuWell from Health Partners was a competitive threat, ironically. Hmm. And he said, how much would it be? And I said, uh, can you do 12 grand a month? And he said, well, it's a lot, but I think we can make it work. And that's what we started living off of. And that was the pivot. How, okay, first of all, at that point, was it just you? Had you let everybody go? Yeah, so, you know, Kevin and Becky were were given part-time. They were responding to visits um, in their free time. And, you know, they were clinicians, so they could pick up clinical work. And, yeah, it was it was me. And it was kind of 24-7 of support. Um, we had some contractors who helped out on the, on the programming side. Yeah. <laughs> so you could actually write code, you know, but... Sure. It was everything. It was kind of a, a one man a one man shop with really close air support from from Kevin and Becky. I want to just circle back to one thing you said. It was a mistake to to bring on a CEO when you did. Is it just that it was too early, or or the wrong person? Wrong person for okay. sure. Okay. Um, okay. So twelve grand. Did you just like come up with that number out of the air? Was that what you needed to cover your own expense? How did you decide on that? Uh, you know, I knew I knew I could pay myself a, a little bit every month uh-huh. um, and cover our fixed costs effectively. You know, so I mean, we didn't we weren't banking anything, yeah. um, but it was just enough to keep the lights on. Yeah. And, were you single? Or did you have a family? Were... No, I was married. Okay. Married at the time. Yeah. Okay. So. S- supportive spouse. 
to support the, to of the spouse. <laughs> although, you know, I think we we did end up getting divorced, and and I think you know the the stress and strain that I, I went through definitely was a was a contributing factor to that. Yeah, um, and I mean, I ask not to pry, but just because that's a huge piece of this. And we've talked to so many people who say, you know, the only reason they were able to do it is because they were single at the time. If they had tried to do it with a family or kids, no way could they have taken the risks that they did. Yeah, you know, I think there's a, a broader discussion that needs to be that needs to come to the forefront. You know, as we think about mental health. And we think about the the correlation with entrepreneurs I and mean, you think about the passion and the dedication, but I think there's also a darker side to that where, and, and I've, I've gone through my own uh, journey with, with mental health and, and had very positive outcomes. But I can tell you now, looking back that I made unhealthy choices mm-hmm. um, and, and not just because not, not just for the business. I mean, it was very committed to it, but there is a deeper pattern um, I, I think of, of, of help that we need to give entrepreneurs and, and almost, uh, I won't unpack too much here, but I think there is definitely looking back, I should have made healthier choices for me personally mm-hmm. and set clear boundaries about what was work and what was, what was a, a, a passion in, in, um, out there. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do that. And I don't think a lot of entrepreneurs take that uh, seriously sometimes. So how, because entrepreneurship is kind of all in, you have to really want to do it and you've got to believe in it and live it and breathe it. How how do you find that balance in the early days? What advice do you give other founders at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that we have unfortunately created a little bit of this, this myth. And I think some of it comes, if you understand that how much of entrepreneurship is venture backed. And I think there is a really destructive cycle that goes from unwieldy expectations for financial returns on businesses that aren't ready to take them on. And it creates this, oh my God, you got to just run and run and run and run and run to get back, you know, get the returns, get the, you know, the investors, the money. And, 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 you know, the good thing is like, I, I have a high degree of accountability. Yeah. I don't take that lightly. Like I'm not just pissing money out the window and, and certainly there are people but I think the 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 key is to reframe the role of entrepreneurship and say listen my job here is to help change the world to take these ideas and put them into action if I am going to be effective I need to make sure that I am setting boundaries and delegating to build a team to find the right people if I'm the only person left at the end of the day this won't happen and I wish I had come and I was fortunate to have a lot of great people around me to help and support. And, you know, I've got an engine that runs pretty hot. But at the end of the day, if I were going back or when I go back to do the next thing, I will start with the thesis that my vision is big and I'm going to build and find the best people to help me do that. Hmm. And I am not going to come back and work 120 hour weeks because that's not sustainable for me. And it's not even good for the business long term yeah. um, because I think I, I'm less effective as a leader in that role. Would you take VC money from the start? Because that seems to be such a big piece of this and, and setting out on that path of, you know, you got to got to keep getting bigger, bigger, bigger. Um, most likely not. I, I've, I've become a lot more, um, I think, as you could say, old school and, and build a profitable business with customers that pay you. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a real loss narrative in that. And I think even... I think there was an article in the strip today. There was a, um, you know, can you teach entrepreneurship? And and I think it was a professor at, at St. Thomas who had a response there. And I was thinking about that today on a walk. And I was like, you know, I think entrepreneurship in our world today is is a lot more about a sign of independence 
um, and, and less about sort of uh, a particular job that you do. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea of being an effective entrepreneur, when you look at people like Bezos or you look at Musk, and those guys have, you know, obviously exceptional track records, but they maintained their vision and control. And there's this really big dynamic, especially for someone like a, a founder like me, who I'm not out sort of building the next best operating paper mill. That's not who I am. I'm going to continue to kind of take big bets. I want to make sure that I have the business and the financing structured so that I can go and drive that vision over five years, over 10 years, um, and not sort of have to have a huge hurdle rate over my head and have investors say, listen, we need our money out in five years, or we don't agree with that. And and I think there's a balance. Listen, there's a there's a balance for everything. There's a role for venture. There's a role for debt. There's all the financing options I think are great. I think that we need to continue to, to press on entrepreneurs. Um, the question of why don't you just build a business that's profitable first right. and then think about, right? Like, Seems why so do you simple. need this? Yeah. And I yeah. think, it, and kind of back to you, like, there's a lot of validation. It's like, ooh, I raised money. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to keep coming back and say, listen, we got to stop printing articles about someone who raises money. Why don't we print it about someone who actually built a profitable business for the past year? Mm-hmm. Like, those are the stories that need to be in ink and wired. And and I think we're, we're starting to do a disservice for for entrepreneurs in that respect. Yeah, I think that's such a such a good point. And that's what we're trying to do right here on By All Means. So thank you for, for talking about it. Um, so so you have this this pivot where Fairview wants to kind of white label this this product and the technology. Is that a big light bulb moment for you? Like this is this is really how Zypnosis is meant to be used? No, it was practical. It was like, okay, I can I can keep running at a bigger vision. I, I just got to, you know, figure out how to make this work over the next couple of years. Um, and we really just focused on the Fairview relationship, again, to the complexities that exist in healthcare. We had a lot of work to do just to get it working for them. But then the light bulb moment was there was an article in the advisory board they called and, and did a, a short little blurb on us. And I got a call from a woman down at University of Alabama, Birmingham, basically a cold call. She said, I saw this advisory board article and we want to use your software. Mm. I was like, what? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And sight unseen, we had customer number two, one of the largest, you know, uh, university academic um, health centers in the country. And she's like, listen, we have, um, we're, we're a landlocked academic center. We've got primary care shortage and we only have one urgent care and we want to use virtual care as a leapfrog and we love your model. They basically said, we want the same thing as Fairview, but branded um, for University of Alabama, Birmingham. And, and um, that was the, the, the real transition point away from being a direct-to-consumer company to really focusing more on licensing and, and, and powering health systems. And did that feel satisfying to you? I mean, at the end of the day, you had this vision for this technology and it was working. It wasn't exactly how you set out to do it, but it was being adopted by big healthcare institutions. Did that feel good? <laughs> it certainly felt better than <laughs> completely running out of money, you know, like I could actually, you know, it, it was, it did feel good. And, I, you know, by... At the same time, we were talking to uh, Verizon. They had, um, back in 2013, 14, they made a huge bet in M Health. And similar to UAB, we somehow got on a call list um, from a consultant. And they said, hey, you ought to talk to these these hypnosis guys. And I remember talking to their CTO at the time for their, their M Health group. And he's like, yeah, I've talked to all the other telemedicine players. And then we had about a four-minute conversation. And he said, you're the guys. We're going to use you. 
And we thought we were going to, you know, go big on that. They were either going to buy us or they were going to integrate us within every Verizon smartphone, you know, out there. Mm -hmm. And I sort of had both of these going at the same time. And then I was also doing a pilot with um, uh, Genentech around, could we use it to do more sort of pharma sponsored? They had a Tamiflu project product. So all three of these, four of these things were happening simultaneously. And ultimately, the only one that really came through was was the health system business, ironically. So hmm. it did feel good. It was sort of like, wow, maybe this is the time. Um, and I remember about the end of 14, we were profitable. Um, we had nine employees and we had nine customers. Wow. Um, and that, and I was like, we're actually probably a little too lean. Like, <laughs> you can't, <laughs> nine <laughs> Nine and nine is is a good ratio, but uh, it's not sustainable. And and that kind of started the path to to go raise a little bit more money. Around this time is when you coined the phrase, trademarked the phrase, digital front door. Am I right? Wasn't that 2014? Yep. And and what what was that about and what did that do as far as helping you to, you know, form the brand of Zypnosis? Uh, nothing because we were too small to really protect it. And, you know, we're, we're trying to kind of claw back at this point, honestly, you know, it's, it's one of those things where being out too early probably, you know, harmed us. Um, but, um, certainly digital front door is more, is definitely very germane to what we're talking about today. It was a little bit of an odd concept to people, um, you know, back in 2014, but it's everywhere today. Um, and it still underpins our basic thesis, which is, listen, consumers are starting on their mobile devices. Give them that entry point. And unfortunately, healthcare has been really, really slow to respond. I, I was joking with people that if you understand, <laughs> if you thought healthcare was slow to move, literally took a, a global pandemic and a complete shutdown for them to start to look at you know, delivering healthcare differently. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's the unfortunate side of that. Exactly, and I, I want to talk about that. I know in before the pandemic, you went on the record saying that uh, telehealth was dead, which seems wait, what? Isn't that exactly what you're doing? So I I, <laughs> I was super intrigued, and and I want to understand why you said that, when you said it, and do you still feel that way now as we're coming out of this pandemic? Oh, yes. I mean, telemedicine is dead. Um, and, I mean, it is in its death meal at this stage, which sounds really weird. Yeah. But it, it, the, the best analogy I give is, and it's a little bit tired, but it is really, it is really spot on, is the difference between Blockbuster and Netflix. What we have engaged with, you know, remotely getting care through telemedicine is the same thing as going and, and renting a movie from from Blockbuster. The reality is that those that business model is dead or dying. They have negative unit economics. They really only make money because of uh, inflated per member per month fees that really obscure it. They have all sorts of weird be kind, rewind. And if you don't, if you use it, you get penalized. It's, it's like Blockbuster, but just in healthcare. <laughs> What's coming though, and you're seeing it with Amazon Care, with Walmart is that the technology itself is commoditized and it's going to be integrated into very different, much more digitally enabled business models. And it's the business model that's the real transformation. And that's what's going to kill telemedicine. This idea that you do a phone call or video visit with a bank of doctors and get paid for that, that is going to be dead in five to 10 years at, at the minimum. 
But what does that mean for me as a patient who wants to have a personal relationship with my doctor? And I have a doctor I like, and I can say it would be much more efficient and fast if I have a question to be able to have a telehealth appointment versus going into the office. But I want to see her. I don't want to just see any random bot who's going to be on the other end of the phone. <laughs> well, that's and that's it. That's exactly right. So the, the reality is that you will have more choice and opportunity to do that. And you'll be able to be more flexible in when you have that. And it could be that they're regular checkups. They could be text messages that you they that you have. They could be little videos that you send. And the the whole point is that the the telemedicine world is really built around doing a phone call or a video visit for a, a very simple interaction. And we're we're at a very different point where you should be able to choose who you want to interact with, and they will support a mode of care or way that you want to get care that makes sense to you. They're not the ones that are necessarily dictating that. And that shift in consumer preference, as well as the technology that unlocks it, is going to is gonna just make this night and day over what we've been doing for the past 20 years. Is the medical world receptive when you say things like this? What kind of reaction do you get from doctors? Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it depends, right? It, Pre-COVID, it was very reserved. And I think post-COVID, the best, you know, the best marketing for, for virtual care and telemedicine was COVID because it really broke down the stigma on physicians um, that they couldn't do this. They couldn't integrate it into their practice. And there are still, there are still things that we, we need to do as an industry um, to improve, um, you know, the workflows for physicians. But it's generally changing. The real thing that they care about and nobody likes to say it is can they get paid for it and can they get reimbursed? And that's where... Um, the reimbursement is better. That's where some of these new business models, especially as you look at capitated or at risk, virtual care is so good. It is so perfect for aligning the financial incentives of the provider with those of the patient and with that bearing the risk. And so I think the narrative is is fundamentally changed. They're much more open to it. There are a lot of unknown questions. There are a lot of things that we still have to solve. But generally, it's it's a much different dialogue than it was pre-COVID. So a lot of what you're talking about is on the back end, and it's, as you're saying, the business transaction side of it. For the consumer, what do you see changing in in the next, I don't know, five years? Choice. I think there's going to be so much more choice. And, you know, we've really been in this kind of landlocked um, healthcare world where you go to a health system or a healthcare provider, the options that you will have as a consumer to get care when you want it, how you want it, at a price you want, is going to be the most radical transformation. And um, in some ways, you're already seeing this with some of the big direct-to-consumer players out there like Roman and Hens and Hers. I, I cite them a lot. But, you know, they're really building businesses by offering a, a variety of products and services, the virtual care is almost the lost leader in the whole equation. Hmm. That's a very different way of looking at healthcare, right? That's a very different way of saying, geez, consumers, we're here to help solve your, you know, your day-to-day problems and we've got other products. Oh, and by the way, we can also just treat your conditions, you know, as a part of that work stream. So I think the choice is going to be there. Interesting too, the other big area that will drive that is um, at-home testing. So COVID definitely, I mean, you think about an industry that went from zero to a hundred real quick, anything doing with at-home diagnostics, remote diagnostics, um, 
it is going to be again night and day over what you have seen five years ago or and i think those choices will be um, pretty profound yeah we we got used to a lot of things we had never done before that's for sure i i'm curious throughout the pandemic um given your focus on healthcare, your um proclivity for big thoughts and big vision what were you thinking in the early days uh, leadership that's what i was thinking I really saw it as a time. I mean, we had such a great culture and great team at Zip. I had implicit trust in understanding that the technology would perform. And what I saw was we had an opportunity and and a mandate to be a leader and uh, to provide clarity, to provide safe and effective solutions to the healthcare providers who were just getting slammed. And and to you know the consumers and patients that were looking for answers and to me leadership was the top of mind and how do we have a very clear direction and focus in this time of need and uh, we were very clear and transparent with internally and externally to our partners um, that we were going to take that seriously and um, i think we did And, and it definitely changed for us as a team i think everybody's trajectory and obviously our visibility in the market, but we really saw that impact. Um, And it wasn't around technology. It wasn't around vision. It was how do we provide leadership in this time of need? So what did happen to the business in 2020? Did you, was, was demand off the charts? How, how did you keep up? Yeah, it was crazy. It was, oh my God. Uh, You know, it it will be interesting just to go back to in a hundred years when people look at, you know, industries and transformation. I mean, Oh, we went, I, I, I think I'm getting my numbers I'm right, but I mean, I think we went from 1,800, 1,900 visits and, you know, March 9th to 65,000 a week later. And wow. I mean, they're just, they're numbers, they're growth numbers you've never seen in any other industry almost at any time. Um, mm-hmm. And that and it was in, um, unbelievable. And was it that the, the health systems knew they had this technology, they just hadn't been fully utilizing it? Or was it new health systems saying, we need this right away? What, what happened? Uh, it was existing. I mean, there wasn't time. I mean, we did start onboarding new customers, but that period was, you know, just people who had it. And suddenly they had, this was their only choice, right? And and patients were literally beating down the walls, virtual walls to get answers. Did, did the system crash? Were you able to keep it going even with that demand? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. So our average wait time before covid from when you sent a, a visit in, when you sent your information in to when you would get an answer back from a physician was about nine minutes, which is incredible. Yeah. Um, it was one of the best in the industry. During COVID, um, a lot of our competitors um, like Teladoc and Amwell, they had hours, if not day wait times on their systems. Our wait time went from nine minutes, and I'm, I'll say this publicly with a little bit of shame, to 10 minutes. <laughs> Really? I mean, it, it Come works. on. No, exactly. No, <laughs> and that's the thing. And that—that's what I mean. Was so gratifying for for me and for the team was to see we took a different approach to how we looked at it, how we built everything. We were focused so much on efficiency, and yes, this needed to be the future. And then it happened, and it worked. Hmm. And that was like—I mean, personally, it was so gratifying after so many years of people saying you know, it won't work, it's not what you do, and then. It doesn't just work. It exceeds every expectation. And 
of course it's the tech, but it's also the, the amazing team that that helps support and build it, and that was that was gratifying. The, I am I can only imagine the 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 tech, of course, is what connects people, but ultimately you do need humans, right? On on either end of that transaction, you've got to have a doctor answering the question, however it comes in. How in the world were you able to maintain that kind of speed, a, a ten minute turnaround? Um, because the average work time for us is about, is under two minutes. Um, and uh, again, it's, it's the way we built it, which is only have clinicians working on clinical problems Mm -hmm. and, and we, we really optimize that. And then, you know, the providers could onboard clinicians. It's so easy to use. You can train a clinician in an hour and have them productive. So Mm -hmm. it's not only efficient, but you can staff up in, that's the old telemedicine models. That's where they fell down, right? There are these rented networks with, high bandwidth video calls that can last for 30, 40 minutes. The math, you can't do the math. It doesn't have a a scaling factor and ours does. Mm -hmm. And that's why it has to be the future, right? If we're going to do 30% of the visits are going to be virtual, you can't do it in the old way. Literally the math doesn't work. And that's what we saw during COVID. And that's, that was really empowering for us. Are any of your competitors doing anything similar? Um, They're starting to trend that direction. Yep. You know, we were definitely trendsetters um, in there, but you're starting to see more of a um, what we call an, a more asynchronous approach mm-hmm. um, as they as they look at leveraging technology. So you have a, a, a banner year. I mean, obviously a crazy year that none of us could have imagined. I don't want to use the word unprecedented. I'm so sick of it. But you know, for your <laughs> business, as as many we've talked to, it it was it was good for business, and you had the right technology at the right time. Did you imagine uh, ending the year with a sale of the company? Um, yes. Um, that was you know, the goal. In, that, that was the goal. And in, 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 in April, um, in May-ish, I, I sat down with the, the board and I said, listen, guys, we, we have we have two paths. We can go raise a lot of money and, and try to go big and scale. Or I think the market really, we need to be a part of a bigger, a bigger entity. I think the market's asking for scale and consolidation. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be my recommendation. And we had inbound interest at the time, as you can imagine, everybody was looking for some kind of solutions. And I said, I think this is the right path. It's the right time. You know, we're, you know, 10, 12 years into the business and it made a ton of sense. And ultimately, you know, when we think about how, you know, the acquisition bright buying us, not only are they local, it's really a a home grand slam for us. They're local, which makes integration easy. Their business model is perfectly aligned with the value we create, you know, and making clinicians efficient. Their whole goal is, to go work closely with health systems to drive down the cost and take risk. I mean, our technology is, it does that in spades. Um, and then their ability to really, this isn't the end of the line. They're, they're here to scale it in ways that we weren't going to achieve as an independent company. Even if we'd raised 50, hundred million, it would have taken too long. Mm-hmm. We can immediately bolt into that. So that was, I, I think it, it wasn't, I mean, I'm very grateful for it, but it was definitely an, an intended outcome. I know you are are bound and can't talk about all of the specifics, but on a broader level, being the visionary entrepreneur that you are, are you still um, energized and driven to solve this problem, to figure out telehealth? Or are there other things, especially coming out of a pandemic that, that you're now seeing or need to be solved? Yeah, I mean, I think the I'm more energized than ever. I mean, the reality is that you know virtual care is going to impact healthcare in so many different ways. Um, 
and we're just we're really just getting started and that's exciting and you know how can i leverage you know years of just working in the trenches and and understanding to you know have a have an impact there and i'm excited for that and of course there are also so many other aspects of healthcare that are are requiring transformation as well and you know there's <laughs> I, I don't imagine that I'll, I'll be at Bright for 50 years, but um, I'm certainly energized at this stage. Do you have a, a notebook with other ideas? Are you always thinking about the, the next possible <laughs> venture? Come on. So, or is it on your smartphone? <laughs> Silly me yeah, well, to go analog. So our, our CFO is a guy named Ben Bowman, and, and Ben and I have known each other for a long time, and, and um, he's a serial entrepreneur, too. We have what we call our seven-year envelope, which is you have an idea and put in an envelope that says, do not open for seven years. And that's kind <laughs> of a, that's our, our discipline. Like, don't do this now. Open it in seven years. If it's still a good idea, then, then maybe think about it. So, yeah, that's, that's, that envelope's always got something in it. Any uh, final thoughts, insights as far as um, the healthcare industry, you know, post-pandemic changes that you think have to happen now or trends that you think consumers are going to, you know, start to notice or, or like after so many years of red tape and complexities? Nobody enjoys the whole process of dealing with the healthcare system as it currently stands. Um, I, I'm optimistic about the the focus on the consumer and and certainly from my vantage point, the positive impact that technology can have. I, I think the real work is going to happen on, on the business side. Um, and I think um, it will be interesting to see how health systems navigate this um, because I think they're, they're under intense pressure to, um, to continue to survive. So I think uh, extremely optimistic about the, the consumerism in healthcare. And I think that's going to be a very positive trend. Very good. Well, John, congratulations on all the success on the payoff. I guess the, the moral is you, you stick with it when you know the idea is a good one, right? Yeah. I guess I wasn't smart enough to, to quit when I should have. Right. It's, it's been an amazing journey. You just wait for a global <laughs> pandemic and it'll all That's work right. out. That's right. There's your answer. <laughs> oh, boy. Too soon to joke? I don't know. Uh, well, John, congratulations. We are, uh, we're excited to, to see that, that you're doing this, that it's happening in the Twin Cities, which is really exciting, too, and can't wait to see what's next. Thank you. Thank you very much. Such a fascinating story and inspiring leader, and we were so lucky to, to get John at such a critical and pivotal time in the future of Zipnosis and, of course, Bright Health. Well, what is the future of healthcare as we come out of this pandemic? For that, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where Daniel McLaughlin is the senior executive fellow whose research focuses on making healthcare work more effectively. Dan, as you listen to John and think about technology that has finally been embraced, there I think there was so much resistance pre-pandemic. It took a pandemic for people to realize it might be nice to be able to see a doctor on a screen. What's the future of healthcare at the intersection of technology now? I think you're right that this is an exciting time uh, for healthcare because, uh, as you point out, the pandemic just accelerated all this technology rapidly. And so one of the things I see and a lot of us see in the, in the big picture is um, what is going to be the digital platform for the future? And so you've got a bunch of competitors in that market. You've got the real big guys, the Amazons and the Googles and those guys. 
they have tried this before and not done very well, so I'm not sure I'm going to bet on them. Mm-hmm. And then then there are the people that are very specially niche things. You see, kind of see TV commercials for those kind of folks. And, and then you can get a doctor on call for a certain disease. That's kind of a little too niche in my mind. And then another one is um, is the electric, electronic uh, health record people. So in the Minnesota market, it's Epic mostly. Uh, so there are big data systems, mm-hmm. um, but they've had to recently, because of federal laws, be able to open up their systems so so other vendors can put data in and take data out of those systems. And then the last one, which is I think where for Zipnosis fits in, and particularly Bright Health, are the health plans. And so Bright Health, who's acquiring Zipnosis. Um, is really a health plan that works with providers. And so they develop what are called provider-sponsored plans. So they integrate the provider and the health insurance, and now they're bringing in a technology like Zipnosis. So that's kind of, I think, is where the future is going to be more in the provider-sponsored plan with all the technology like Zipnosis. Very interesting. It's it's definitely a time of disruption in healthcare. Um I'm curious, as we look at some of these products and technological capabilities that really took off during the pandemic, like telehealth, do you think the in the next you know couple of years, are we going to see more um, companies just trying to kind of replicate what Zipnosis is already doing? Or are they looking further ahead to, to, to what is the next thing that we need? I think the, uh, the Zipnosis, kind of the pure telehealth thing, will uh, kind of be just one part of the new electronic future there um, because a lot of people can duplicate that. I don't think the IT part of that is necessarily that complicated. What Zipnosis had was a really good thing was working through the workflow for the physicians at the other end. So Mm -hmm. that makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that's really on the horizon that's starting to come along is a thing called digital therapeutics, which is all kinds of devices that we're going to either have on our home or wear on our body. I mean, the Apple Watch is kind of the simplest one of those, but there's going to be a lot more of those kind of systems. And so all that's going to come together, not only the telehealth visits, but all these physiological things popping off your body. Wow. Going to, go, going to go into this big, fancy AI system at some place and some platform someplace. And then we're going to get a much better, more customized healthcare. That is so wild to think about. So so basically, we should not plan to, to go back to the doctor's office anytime soon. It's coming to us. Uh, I think every now and then we ought to do that. I kind of like to see the smile on my doctor's face. <laughs> yeah, especially when they can take off the mask. Right. Well, Dan McLaughlin, thank you as always for the insights. You always have such good perspective, especially of what is coming our way that we can't believe, but it will probably be here before we know it. Thank you for your time. And thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. You'll find all of our past episodes there, meet all the entrepreneurs, and of course, get great insights from our professors at the University of St. Thomas. Thanks again for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed by all means. Bye.